0: If you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Psalms. And we are going to be today, Lord willing, in Psalm 3. Psalm 3. The text that Paul just read for us out of the book of 2 Samuel ended with the statement that while the people were loudly weeping and lamentation was, was resounding in the ears of the king, it says the king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. In this particular psalm, we will see that David is, by the grace of Christ, sustained in a wilderness experience. This particular psalm being penned when he left Jerusalem, there suffering the persecutions of Absalom. Let's come to the text and read from the text today. Let's just read through the passage. And then I want to note a few points, uh, maybe by way of just looking at the placement of the psalm in relation to the Psalter, uh, at large. I want to look at the, uh, the flow of the text that we see and maybe just kind of outline the text for us a little bit. And then I'd like to come down and make some corresponding points of application. Psalm 3, let's begin with the header to the psalm. It is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O oh Lord, How my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down. And slept, I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation Belongs to the Lord, your blessing be upon your people. David is clearly in what we would call a wilderness experience. He has been cast away in many ways. And as we kind of look through this, we'll see it's, it's almost as if he's cast away from the Lord, from that, from that place of blessing. But God faithfully sustains him in this wilderness experience. I'm just going to look through a few things about the psalm. Think about the psalm's placement. Psalm 3 follows Psalm 2, yes, but it really follows Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 really are kind of a a, a one movement, one thought about that blessed man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but rather he walks in the way of the Lord. And if you notice in Psalm 1, it opens up with this question about how blessed is the man who doesn't do these wicked things, but he does delight in the law of the Lord. And at the end of Psalm 2, we come back again to the idea of blessing, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. And just briefly, Psalm 1 and 2 point us to the Lord Jesus Christ as the blessed one, and then they encourage us and exhort men to to come and find refuge in the Blessed One. And if you find refuge in the Blessed One, then you too are blessed. These two psalms kind of serve the point of being somewhat like a threshold. And by way of stepping over this threshold, we step into the whole of the Psalter. Think of what the Psalter is. The Psalter is a collection of of hymns and songs. Spiritual songs that the people of God will take upon their lips and sing in praise to God. They are the book of the worshiping community. If you're in the Psalms, then you're, like, you're considered to be in that group of people that are worshipers of God. And the way into that community is through the Blessed One that is held out to us in these opening Psalms if you've come through this doorway, if you've come across this threshold, then you too are part of this community. In this sense, Psalm 3 isn't necessarily the third psalm. It's like the first psalm in the first book of Psalms. Notice back in Psalm 1, right above Psalm 1, you'll notice it probably says in your Bible, book 1. The 150 psalms that we have in our Bibles are broken up into five books. They begin with one. Book one begins with one and ends with Psalm 41, the psalm that we read this morning. But notice something is missing in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 that Psalm 3 has. Notice in Psalm 1, verse 1, right above it, there's no header. In Psalm 2, verse 1, right above it, there's no header. Now, you may have a... uh, in your Bible, you might have like a, a, a subject summary of what the psalm is about. Mine has that. Uh, psalm 1 is about the righteous and the wicked contrasted. all right. Or Psalm 2 is the reign of the Lord's anointed. Psalm 3 has this kind of thing too. And in the New American Standard, they're all in caps. It kind of shows you the, the, um, the subject of, of that particular psalm. But when I say the header, look in Psalm 3. Right above verse 1, it says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. The headers will designate sometimes the author. Sometimes they'll designate the type of instrument that the psalm is to be played on. Uh, Sometimes they might designate some historical point of reference. uh, And that's certainly what we have here in Psalm 3. Well, Psalm 3 is the first psalm with a header. It identifies the author. David, And in fact, book 1, if we just think of book 1 as consisting of Psalms 3 through 41, every psalm in that section is written by David except for two psalms, Psalm 10 and Psalm 33, that are anonymous. In other words, they may have been written by David as well. We don't, we're not given a, an, an author of those particular psalms. This particular psalm not only identifies an author, it also identifies a life situation I thought it was interesting what the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry said about this idea of, of giving us a life situation in the header of the psalm. He said, it's like a key hung ready at the door to open it and let us into the entertainment of it. In other words, when, when a historical setting is given to us in the header of a psalm, we don't want to just breeze past that too much. That's why I had Paul Reed from 2 Samuel 15, because it gives us the actual story of what happens when David flees from Absalom. This needs to be taken into account in our interpretation and our application of the psalm. Notice something else about the psalm, not just its placement. Notice its flow. Notice the movement of the psalm. There is a distinct and clear chronology to the psalm. He begins by, by telling us that enemies are about him. But there aren't a, there aren't a lot of them. There are, there are many. But later he's going to say in verse 6, there are ten thousands of people. In other words, it's grown. He says in verse 1, my adversaries have increased. So I have opponents. I have adversaries. And, and it's a growing group of people. As time goes on, more and more people kind of get in this band of enemies that I have. And when we read Second Samuel 15, we can see that very thing, can't we? His Absalom, his enemy." But as Absalom goes on in the story, did you catch the, the, the phrase that, that Paul read several times that Absalom was winning the hearts of the people, and more and more of the people were coming over to his side. And it was getting to the point that David had to flee and had to leave the city. So it begins with the enemies rising. The volume is increasing. He pleads with God. He, he, he pleads with God and offers prayer in verses 3 and 4. He is surrounded, it says, in verse 6. They have set themselves against me round about. And the word there is kind of like they've, they've encircled him. They've, the enemies have circled the wagons. You can almost see them circling the wagons against the city. And David has to find a way to get out by crossing through the brook Kidron and then going out into the wilderness. Finally, David looks forward. David looks forward, he calls upon God to deliver him, and God and his great power and God and his great beneficence to David does indeed bring salvation to him. There's kind of a flowing chronology from things looking very bleak at the beginning. The thing's looking rather triumphant at the end. We want to notice something also about the structure of the psalm. It's a very brief psalm, which is nice, um, but it it can make it difficult as just how to break it up. There are a couple of ways we could go about this, and I don't want to belabor this point too long, but just to show you some of the structure. There is a built-in structure that's been put here for us with the little phrase, Selah. We've seen this before in the Psalms, and that little Selah breaks up the various stanzas of the poetry. You notice there in verse 2, in between verses 2 and 3, you have that little word Selah, probably printed in your Bible. In between verses 4 and 5, Selah. And then at the end of verse 8, Selah. Some speculate that the word salah is kind of like a musical notation that kind of, kind of brings about the idea of a pause. You might think of at the end of a stanza of music, uh, maybe there's like a cutting off of the music, and then we come back in, and we sing again, and, and we've come like to the end of a thought at the end of a stanza, and then we come back in and sing stanza two, and, and it has a complete thought going through the whole line until we come back to stanza four You've probably noticed that about hymns and psalms that we've sung before. Now, if we take that as a structure, then we really have three basic points to the psalm. Verses 1 and 2 is point 1. Verses 3 and 4 would be point 2. And then verses 5 through 8 would be kind of a third stanza or a third point. As I thought about that, I thought, well, we could call this verses 1 and 2. If you're a note taker, we could call it the situation. Verses 3 and 4, we could, we could say, is a, is a reorientation of David's heart to God. He turns to the Lord and thinks about what he has in God. And then verses 5 to 8 point to the idea of expectation and hope of deliverance and future salvation. Or another way to break this up is into four stanzas. And this is, interestingly, the way the New American Standard has done this in its writing out of the Psalm. You'll notice that there's a break between verses 2 and 3, a break between verses 4 and 5, a break between verses 6 and 7. Now that would give us four basic headers or four basic points to the psalm. And I know this may be just a little academic or heady or whatever, but I think stick with me. I think you'll you'll become more familiar with the psalm if we kind of work through this in this way. And it's not... Too challenging, because there are only eight verses. It's not like we're dealing with Psalm 119, and we're trying to break it up, okay? We'd be here all day, all right? But if, if we just do four stanzas, then, then Psalm 1 and 2 is, is a lament. Psalm 1 and 2 is a, a lament, where he's, he's recounting the situation of all these adversaries that are around him. They're increasing, they're growing, they're mocking him. You have no deliverance in God, no hope in God. Then in verses 3 to 4, we have again this reorientation. Because in verse 3, he says, But, this is what they're saying, but you, this is what they're saying, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield. They say, I have no deliverance, but you are my shield. And he thinks about God, who is his glory, the lifter of his head. God is answering David from the holy mountain. David may have had to leave. His kingdom. David may have had to leave his city. David may have had to leave his throne. But the Lord God is still on his throne up above. David need not fear. In fact, in verses 5 and 6, we might say this is a picture of hope. He lays down. He sleeps. He awakes. God sustains him. Look at that imagery of laying down and sleeping, awaking, and being sustained. I will not be afraid. People are all around me. They're surrounding me at every point in turn. Wherever I look, all I see is enemies. But God sustains me. I will not be afraid. God is my help and shield. And then in verses 7 to 8, he comes back. He comes back to petition. So verses 1 and 2 is a petition. It's a petition of lament and sorrow. But verses 7 and 8 is also a petition, but it's a petition of hope and kind of a rejuvenated spirit. Verses 7 and 8, he calls upon God to arise. He looks at God in his power. But he also looks at God in his beneficence, his kindness to him. He knows that God is always disposed to bring him salvation and blessing. There may be some other ways to arrange this psalm as well. And what I'd like to do is arrange this psalm by way of some themes i'm going to take those four stanzas that we just gave there of lament and reorientation and hope and petition but i want to give them maybe some some more full themes to kind of kind of get our minds around and the first theme is this in verses 1 and 2 there is expressed the common lamentable experience of men the common lamentable experience of men. I just want to give you all four of these, and then we're going to come back and we will try to unpack them. In verses 3 and 4, we have a unique divine portrait provided for us of God. A unique divine portrait provided. Of God. So we begin with the common lamentable experience of man, and then we are turned to a unique, divine portrait of God. In verses five and six, we have a typological, messianic connection to Jesus. And you're thinking, "What is that?" I'll just write it down now and stick with. It. We'll bring it out maybe you've already seen it there is a typological messianic connection to jesus and this shouldn't surprise us should it because all of scripture is pointing us to the lord jesus christ and in fact all this whole psalm is pointing us to the lord jesus christ but in particular in verses five and six there's something i want to bring out and then in verses seven and eight in verses seven and eight the psalm takes more of an eschatological or a forward-looking turn and i would just say that there's a forward-looking eschatological hope for us all, a forward-looking eschatological hope for us all. So, a common lamentable experience of mankind that we all have. We can all we can all quickly check into verses one and two, <laughs> the difficulty, the struggle. All right, verses three and four, a unique divine portrait of God. Five and six, a typological messianic connection to Jesus, and then number four, verses seven and eight, a forward-looking eschatological hope for us all. Let's see if we can come and make heads or tails, as they say, about these four points, and we'll make some application, Lord willing, as we go. When we come to Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2, it's not hard to check in, as I would say, to what's happening here in David's life. It is a lament. It is an expression of brokenness and Sorrow. Are you ever, are you ever surprised at how much of your life is dealing with sorrow? Are you ever surprised with how much of your life is a dealing with sorrow? Life is just full of sorrow. Now, I don't want to be, you know, Johnny Raincloud in the pulpit today, you know, and Gloom and doom, and oh, wasn't that nice? I love being in church. I'm so glad Pastor Jason was here. Pastor Ryan's coming back next week. It'll be much happier. And Daniel, and uh, that was just that was just depressing. Well, you can try to deny the fact that most of life, or much of life, is dealing with sorrow and difficulty, or you can face the fact. The fact is, is we live in a fallen world, and we are fallen people, and we are surrounded by. Fallen people. And no matter how hard Adam works, the ground often brings thorns and thistles. By God's grace, we have momentary joys, don't we? And we have reprieves and we have rest. You know, as a parent, you have those when the kids are finally all in bed and it's all finally quiet and you turn. And you look at your spouse and you go, we made it. And the older Janice and I get, that's usually followed about 30 seconds later by falling asleep. Like, great, 30 second date tonight. That was awesome. All right. Um, Life is just full of challenge. That's not to be discouraging. It's just to say that's the way it is. We battle with the world. We battle with the flesh. We battle with the devil. We battle in this world with sickness. We battle with sin. We battle with loss. David here says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. You're not a king and you're not about to lose your kingdom, and maybe your son hasn't just led a revolt and driven you out of your kingdom. How hard this must have been for David. I can only imagine. I've had difficulty as a parent for, I guess I've been a parent now for 30 plus years. None of my sons has ever rebelled against me and tried to throw me out or kill me. They're still tomorrow, I guess. Ben could take me out any moment. And any of them could. And my oldest son was an ex-army ranger, and he has lots of friends with guns, and he could probably take me out just like that. Nathan's always the funny one at home, because if I act like I'm going to chase Nathan, he just kind of runs away. And it's pretty funny, because he's 25 years old. And he told me a few months ago, I, we were laughing about that, and he said, Well, Dad... I just do that because I don't want to hurt you. (laughs) And I'm like, man, that's crushing. That's just devastating. True, but devastating. I've never had that experience. How overwhelming it must have been for David, often a foolish father, not addressing situations in his home And that's what led, really, to Absalom's rebellion and his anger and his frustration. But Absalom is trying to take over the kingdom. And David's enemies are on the rise. So much to the point that they are mocking him, that there is no deliverance for him and God. And interestingly, in verse 2, the word for deliverance is the same word that is used in verse 8 for salvation. I don't know why they translate it like that. Literally, there's no salvation for him in God. God is done with him. God has no more to do with David. They've looked at David's situation. They've looked at David's sorrow. And all of a sudden, they conclude that God is simply done with him. David's sorrow, though, even though it's unique in the sense that he's a king about to potentially lose a kingdom, His lament is expressive of something that is common to every man and woman and child in this room. It is life outside the garden, and it is full of sorrow. You may be here today, and your own heart is heavy with sorrow dealing with the world and the flesh and the devil. Maybe you've come to church today and you thought, maybe I'll get a reprieve from this for just a few moments. Oh, great, the pastor is going to speak about sorrow and difficulty in the world. Peter tells us something about sorrow, he tells us something about suffering. He gives this helpful word. He he says that, that you shouldn't think when something difficult comes, when suffering comes, when trials come, you shouldn't think it, here's his word, a strange thing. I find it interesting that many Bible believing, even reformed types, that we seem to forget that the normal experience in this world, even for a believer, is what? It's one of suffering, it's one of difficulty. You see, when sorrow and difficulty come into your life and mine, it's very easy to become like Job's friends. Remember Job? The whole book of Job is about what? Sorrow and suffering of a righteous man, of a man who hadn't technically done anything wrong. He wasn't being judged for something he had done wrong. He was a righteous, faithful man living in a fallen world and he suffered difficulty and his friends, his friends came along and said what? Oh man, Job, you must have done what? You must have done something. You must have done something. Why? Because good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. You see how that theology kind of creeps into our own thinking? When was the last time something difficult came into your family? Maybe something difficult came into dealing with your children, or a loss, or a death, or some struggle. And and one of the first things you begin to say is, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Your kids are disobedient. Your kid doesn't believe in the gospel. Your kid is far from the Lord. And the moment you you begin to think on those kinds of things, what happens to you as a parent, as a mother, as a father? You begin to question everything you did with them when they were little. Is this my fault? Did I do something? Because we all know that Christian people who do the right thing always have perfect kids. And they always have believing kids. And everything goes well for them. Isn't that right? No, that's not right. But we began like the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers, preaching to ourselves a message of condemnation that says, "Obviously, you're having difficulty because you just don't have enough faith. You don't love the Lord. You're not doing the right things." And we kind of adopt that Julie Andrews theology. Remember that? All right, remember Julie Andrews there in The Sound of Music? You know, she's sitting there with uh, with the the colonel or the admiral or whatever he is, and she sings this little song, and I'm not going to sing it because they're already threatening to put my song from Sunday school on social media, and I'm scared what's going to happen there. But she makes this statement, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done what? Something good. And Julie Andrews has this thought that the reason good things are happening for her is because she did something good somewhere back then. Brothers and sisters, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it worked for your Savior. There was never anyone who was more holy, harmless, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners than the Lord Jesus Christ. And wicked men crucified the Lord of glory. And he came to set you an example on how you ought to walk as he walked. And walk righteously. Suffer as a Christian. Suffer in faithfulness. Suffer in faith and in trust. And in fact, as we look through this, 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 this text in this psalm, it's exactly what David does. Because this common lamentable experience of man that he experiences that he's recounting in verses 1 and 2 is followed by a unique divine portrait of God in verses 3 and 4. Look what he says. But you, O Lord. In other words, I know they must be wrong. They're saying there's no deliverance for me in God. They're saying you've abandoned me. But they're wrong. And what helps him know he's wrong is he has a view of God that corresponds with truth. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Brothers and sisters, when you face difficulty in this world which you will and it will not be a rarity it will be a regularity it will be something that you face every day some of you may be young and maybe you haven't faced great difficulties but one thing i've noticed that the older i get the more difficult life becomes the older i get the more people i know who die and yes when people die in the lord you have hope right but you also have grief, don't you? We do not grieve as those who have no hope, but we do grieve, and I know more and more people who have died. One day, that shadow of death will be swallowed up by life, and it will be gone. I know more and more people that are sick. I know more and more people who have abandoned the faith I know more and more people who have apostatized. I knew more and more preachers today than I ever knew before that no longer preach the gospel. I have more friends in my life that I've known in the past that I have no connection with now at all because they've walked away from Christ. I have more kids that are older and they have more problems. I remember when my kids were little. How many times, moms, have you said something like, if we could only go back when they were little bitty and we could just hold them. But you can't do that. You can't do that. Because they're older now. And when they're little, the worst thing you gotta worry about is a boo boo on the head, falling down, breaking an arm or whatever. When they get old, oh, they make decisions. And they're costly, and they're painful, and your heart as a parent grieves. I know more and more of this world than I ever wanted to know. I know more of my own sin. I know more about your sin. I know more about the world. And I know the next election is really in the end, not the answer. It's just going to be one more wicked man on a throne in the world. But brothers and sisters, like David, I have a unique, divine portrait of God given to me, my hope David's hope was not in Jerusalem. David's hope was not on his throne. David's hope was in heaven. David's hope was on the throne. David's hope was in the blessed one of Psalm 2, the king who had been installed on his throne in Zion. Your view of God will determine how well you deal with the laments of life. In 1855, Charles Spurgeon was somewhere around 19 or 20 years old, and he's preaching at the New Park Street pulpit in Southwark, England, and he made this comment. He said, it's been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. It goes on. I'd commend the sermon to you. This is a young man of 19, 20 years old. He, like David, had a view of God that sustained him in the midst of many difficulties. David calls God here his shield, his protector. God is his glory, his king. God is the one who lifts up his head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. Do you hear? Do you hear in that the earnestness of God's, of David's prayer? I was crying to the Lord. It wasn't just praying, I was cry praying. <laughs> it, was, it was an earnest pleading with God, and God answered him from his holy hill. This vision of God sustains David throughout the Psalms. And friend, if you have this shared vision of the greatness and the glory and the power and the wonder of God, it will sustain you too. And you may sit there today and think I don't have any problems. Everything's good. It's all good. Oh, man, if there was a phrase that just needs to go in the garbage, it's all good. Remember to tell you that? How are things going? It's all good? Really? It's all are, are you like are you like alive? Are you like breathing? Are you paying attention? It's all good? It is never all good outside the garden. We are pleading with God that Christ would come back. Why? Because it's not all good. It's not all right. But one day Christ will come back. He will descend from heaven with the shout of an angel. He will come and He will make all things right in the world. Don't fool yourself as saying it's, it's all good. It's not supposed to be all good right now. In the providence of God, this is where we are. We've fallen men in a fallen world in need of the intervention of a glorious, great God. And that's what I'm pleading for every day. David here, in this common lamentable experience, has this unique divine portrait of God that is manifested to him and revealed to him. I want you to notice something else about this psalm. David moves here, into a a couple of just brief expressions where he expresses his hope in verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. I see here a, a glorious typological picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely we could have already come to think on Christ in verses 1 and 2. Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, born into this world. He walked in obedience to his Father, but he tasted the lament of this fallen world, did he not? He saw sickness. He saw death. He saw loss. He saw rebellion. In Psalm 41, this psalm that closes out this first book of the Psalms. It points to the rebellion and rejection of Christ by Judas, his good friend who turned up his heel at him and turned away from him. It's all in Psalm 41 and verse 9. It's quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 pointing to Judas, the betrayer. But here in verses 5 and 6 we see David expressing In the midst of, yes, lamentation, following this declaration of his glorious God, he expresses these words of hope. You see, earlier in verses 1 and 2, my adversaries have increased. They're rising against me. They're saying there's no deliverance for me in God. I mean, that's all pretty full of anguish, isn't it? But in verses 5 and 6, and look in verse 6, these enemies that have increased, they're now in the tens of thousands. David doesn't sound nearly as anxious. Remember verses 5 and 6 follow verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4, this picture of God being his shield, his glory, his helper. And when I get my eyes off of what's happening here, and I get my eyes back on this glorious view of God, what happens? Hope is kindled, right? Hope is stirred in my heart. I lay down, and I sleep wake up, God sustains me. This, or in this verse in particular, I see a picture of the death and the resurrection of the Savior. Jesus, who comes into this world, a world full of lament, does indeed look to his Father over and over again. And he lives his life, and he lays his life down, and he sleeps, the sleep of death, and he takes it up again, and his God sustains him. Now, you have to look a while in the commentaries to find some help with this. It's always interesting when you're reading the Bible and you come across something, you think, oh, that's, that's interesting. And then you go read all the commentaries, and nobody mentions a thing that you mentioned, And you're like, that's not very helpful. Maybe I'm just, you know, out to lunch, you know, day late and a dollar short. Maybe I'm like the the coyote that ran off the edge of the cliff and there's nothing underneath him again and I'm just about to fall. And then I find one commentator and he says, yeah, there are some people in the history of the church that say this points to Jesus and his death and resurrection, but obviously that's not the case. I'm like, thanks, thanks a lot. So you start digging in older commentary. You dig in Clement of Alexandria. No, sorry, Clement of Rome, the first century, in his little letter, one Clement, who cites this as a picture of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You read the writings of Justin Martyr, the apologist, who sees this as a picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is interesting because Justin Martyr is constantly doing what? He's an apologist to the Jews. So he's using their Old Testament scriptures to try to show the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you come down to Augustine. Now, there are several others. But I love this one. Now, this is not meant to be insulting. I didn't write this. I'm just reading it. And Augustine says, About his resurrection, also the oracles of the Psalms are by no means silent. For what else is it that is sung in his person? In the third Psalm, I laid me down and took a sleep, and I awaked. For the Lord sustained me, Psalm three five. Augustine says, "Is there perchance anyone so stupid as to believe that the prophet chose to point it out to us as something great that he had slept and risen up out of bed?" In other words, is is that all David saying? I went to bed. I woke up. This is great. This is fabulous. This is inspired scripture. I'm going to write this down. That's not what he's doing. I mean, why would it, is this like a per, parenthetical aside? I took a nap. Is that what he's saying? I, I'm, I'm describing great things about God. and Oh, I must, have, I must have dozed off. I guess I'll write that in my notes. I, I laid down and I went to sleep and I woke. The Lord sustained me. Now back to the task of writing the inspired word of God. No, no. Augustine says... That would just be, that'd be ridiculous. Why put that in the Bible? He says, unless the sleep had been death and that awakening the resurrection, which behooved to be thus prophesied concerning Christ. The scriptures, brothers and sisters, are continually pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Luke chapter 24 when Jesus appears to the disciples there on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple. Everybody wants to know who the unnamed disciple is. And it says while they're walking along, Jesus opened to them the scriptures concerning himself. And then later he appears to all the disciples. And it says that he, he opened up the things and the prophets and the, the writings and the psalms in particular. He unfolded how those things were about him. This psalm points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does this help us? This helps us because it's not just David who walks through the world in sorrow and difficulty. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the man of sorrows. No one tasted sorrow in the world like Jesus. No one experienced temptation like Jesus. I mean, think about temptation for just a moment. I mean, how long do you last, really? Probably not very long. You know, I don't even think the devil has to come tempt me. He probably just sins like his weakest, most pathetic demon. Hey, go get Jason. I mean, he's a he's a pathetic case. Let's just get the weakest of all the angelic figures that have fallen, and he can tempt. It doesn't take much sometimes, does it, to just fall to pieces. And there you are again, back in the road of sin. Because you're not all you thought you were. But the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the one who faced the devil in the wilderness himself and defeated him not once, not twice, but three times until the devil leaves him for a more opportune time. And in the moment when the devil thinks he's probably triumphed the most at the cross, in fact, this is Christ's glorious moment where he crushes the head of the serpent. Your Savior, brothers and sisters, your Lord has tasted the bitter temptation of the enemy to the nth degree, and he has never once succumbed. So go to him when you're weak. Go to him when you're tried. Go to him when you're overwhelmed. No one else but Jesus knows how to overcome sin at every point. It's not enough just to read Psalm 3 and think, "Oh, this is great. David can identify with my pain, like he's a politician in the 90s trying to get elected. I feel your pain." That's for the people who are older. Politicians might tell us that they can feel our pain, our sorrow. That doesn't help me. Just knowing that David had trouble, that that's not going to help me ultimately. Brothers and sisters, I need to know that there is one who has tasted temptation in every way, but he, he has emerged victorious. And either that's a giant plane above our head that's hovering or that's rain. I don't know what that is. Praise God for rain. Momentary reprieves. (laughs) In the midst of the garden living we have in Texas for months and months and months, Well, David moves from this common lament and a unique picture of his great God and portraying for us by the Spirit's inspiration this brief look at the Lord Jesus Christ to a forward-looking eschatological hope for us all. Look in verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. David has come a long way in eight verses. Sometimes, praise the Lord, it doesn't take forever to lift us out of despair and we have our hearts reoriented rather quickly. By the time he gets to verses 7 and 8, he is taking this vision of God that he's had in verses 3 and 4, and he's calling upon God to move to action. Arise, O Lord, and save. Now this is an image that's used often in the Scripture calling upon God who is seated on his heavenly throne to stand up, to make a move, to come and to intervene in his life. The prayer takes a real different tone here. Think about the way that you may pray. Oh God, we're going through this great difficulty in life. Things are overwhelming for us. We would pray that you would would sustain us and hold us up. Now, that's understandable. And we all pray like that. And in fact, David acknowledges that God is the one, back in verse 5, who has sustained him. But David doesn't just want God to sustain him. David wants God to intervene. David wants God to act. David is like that one in the parable in the Gospels who keeps on asking. He keeps on seeking. He keeps on knocking. He won't turn away until the guy gets out of bed and comes and answers his request. He perseveres in prayer because he wants God to intervene in his life. You ever ever needed help so bad? Wanted help so bad? Had such a situation that you simply pled with God over and over and over and over? Let me ask you, have you Have we perhaps grown weary in doing the good work of prayer and we're just happy to be sustained, but we need to be calling upon God to act, calling upon God to intervene. God here in verse 7 is acknowledged to have the power to come and smite the enemy, to break the teeth of the wicked. David is... David is in in no unsure, he has no that's the word I'm looking for, he's not lacking assurance that God has the power to do this. Now here's the question. I can believe that God has the power to do something, but I might not think that God is inclined to do something. Well the psalm helps us here too. Look in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. David is Is full of confidence in God's power. David is full of confidence in God's inclination to be benevolent to him. You serve a God that not only has all power, but he also has all grace to make it abound to meet your every need. What does James say? James has a a great caution for us when it comes to prayer he's rebuking the people in James I think chapter 4 he says he says you you ask because you want to spend what you want to get on your own selfish motives and things like that but he makes this comment he says you don't have because you don't what ask now obviously we don't want to become those people who just think we get whatever we want, like a two-year-old, you know. Please, give me, give me. That's not the way prayer works. But if we ask according to his will, he does what? He hears, he, he answers, he is glorified. God delights in the prayers of his people. He delights to respond and to answer the prayers of his people when they're offered in accordance with his will. Let us not doubt, brothers and sisters, God's power And let us not question his disposition to us. He is full of power and full of love for you. So go to God and plead with him. Go to God and keep pleading with him. Go to God and plead with him because he has called you to ask him. Go to God and ask him in such a way that it might bring him glory and work for your good and for the good of others. Here, David says salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. David is not just thinking about himself here. He's thinking about what? His people. He's pleading with God for his people for their benefit. This is indeed a precious psalm. Does God sustain us in the wilderness? Absolutely. Will God or does God have the power to sustain you in the wilderness? Absolutely. Does God have the inclination to sustain you in the wilderness? Most assuredly. Go to your God. May he display his power. May he display his grace. To meet your every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. We thank you for the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that by his laying down, by his, by his death and by his resurrection, we have every hope and expectation to, to be able by grace to lay hold of the power that you provide and to, to be favorably received because you are inclined because of Christ to bless Your children. I would pray for my brothers and sisters, whatever thing, whatever situation they may find themselves in today, that you will move them by virtue of a great view of God in light of the glorious work of Christ, that you would move them to plead with you with every expectation and hope that you will meet their every need according to your riches in Christ Jesus. Help us to not grow weary in doing good. Fill our prayers with faith and confidence in your word, and we pray that all this might redound to the glory of Christ and the good of our own souls. We ask this in Jesus' name.